Hey everyone, welcome back to the new For 22 podcast. So this is our new podcast. We are going through a rebrand and now we are called the New Era Property Podcast. So we're really excited that this is going to be in the new format and we're at the studio. So the audio quality should be pretty good as well. So all fingers crossed. And of course, we've got the wonderful Lorraine Gannon with us. Hello. So we've got a really exciting few shows coming up, folks. Now, what we're going to do on the new podcast is release it every Wednesday. So every Wednesday morning, it's going to be about 30 minutes long, and we're going to be covering all things property, topical debates, and market strategies. So without further ado, let's get straight into today's show. So we're going to talk about single lets. So Lorraine, what do you think about single lets and what sort of tips and tricks can we give the listeners? Well, single lets, where do we start? I think one of the things that I've just recently heard is, is a term coined the single let crash. Now, I think that's really interesting that actually we may be talking about a buy to let crash from the point of view of a um, landlord or a property investor who owns a set of buy-to-let properties and actually isn't making any money from them. Have you heard any of this? I think a couple of people that um, have been in our communities over the last couple of weeks have come up to us and said, I mean, I've got one example and one person said, look, you know, we've got five buy-to-lets. One of them makes around £120 a month profit and that's before tax. Now, I think when we talk about buy-to-lets, it's always been the bread and butter, hasn't it? It's always been the mainstay of new property investors, cut your teeth on a buy-to-let first and then move on to perhaps something bigger. I've always pushed back on that. And I've always said, look, if you're going to invest in any form of property, then there are better ways to get cash flow than just putting it into buy-to-let properties and then just waiting to set and forget, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there that actually... If somebody does buy a buy-to-let as their first property investing venture and is looking for great cash flow to replace their income, retirement income, then to get that 200 odd pound a month isn't actually life transforming, is it? It's one of those strategies that's just going to be, yeah, it's all right, but actually you're not delivering any real value to you or your family's income. And I think the real challenge is actually you can get massively stuck behind this stuff. As soon as you've bought that one property, you've either got a you've put a deposit in, you've then got to look at how you might get that back out or what you do next to get your next property. And if you don't have a way of getting deposits, then you start wondering how the hell do other people do it? The other thing to look at as well is voids. And I think when people start to do their deal stacking and start looking at you know how the deal actually works is the void element. Now, if you're going to go into a single let property and you have one void then your cash flow is wiped out completely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, if you you have a couple of voids, and I was talking to somebody this week who was also looking at how they would have 12 or so properties and they were making no money. They had a couple of voids, three voids. Now, if you've got 10 properties, then potentially you've got £250,000 worth of on average house price of 250 in the UK, roughly. It's a bit more now. I think it's gone up to about 288. 
Okay, so if we keep the math simple and round down a little bit, so if we've got 12 properties, for instance, then we've got £3 million worth of property at 250000 So those 12 properties, if you've got a 75% buy-to-let mortgage on them, you might be making uh, what £3,000 a month, £250 each. But then if you've got a mortgage, what we work out roughly at 3% interest is that could cost you £1,400 a month in voids. If you've got three properties void and you can't rent them out, then you've kind of only got about £1,500 left. And it's kind of debilitating for people to actually grow and scale a property portfolio and actually have an income that's worth anything really to them and their family. It's not replacing Mm. their income. But now we've also got the Clause 24 tax element, haven't we? So for those that don't know, I don't know, it's probably started to raise its ugly head about four, maybe five years ago, where investors back in the day, so some of you might remember this, large portfolio landlords that are getting on in years now back in the day managed to accrue their portfolios with a company called mortgage express and i believe that was part of the bradford and bingley and what they allowed you to do was they would give you finance on a property and enable you to refinance the property on the same day so effectively if you bought that property below market value and then you took it to your conveyancer, and then on the day of completion, they would refinance it at the current market value. So you would actually be getting paid to buy portfolios. And that happened for quite a long time. So that allowed loads of people to go out, buy lots of buy-to-let properties, and accrue big portfolios. Now with Clause 24 tax, what's happening is that we're having or lot private landlords in their own own name rather than being in a company are having to pay tax on the mortgage interest where that never used to be the case so subsequently all of these landlords now are making far less than they were before and some of which are actually not making any money at all and i think that you know when people that are in that situation either are forcing themselves to sell because of the bad company setup or they're looking at trying to transfer those assets into some form of limited company structure, which isn't that easy. So when it comes to setting up a limited company, Lorraine, and you're an accountant, or you used to be an accountant, I mean, are you always, <laughs> once no. an accountant, always an accountant? I you're don't know. always hmm. an accountant. Always an accountant. Yeah. So I'm always a copper, but you don't think that, do you? You said, no, you're not. Every time I talk about my police service, I said, well, you're not in the police anymore, Rick. Well, you haven't got a warrant card, have you? You're not in the police anymore. <laughs> Anyway, we diversify. So, limited company versus sole trader. So, we're talking about single let properties specifically at the moment. And we're going along the lines of, you know, how much money can you make out of property? So, if anyone's listening now and they're thinking about going into single lets rather than anything else, what is the best company structure for them, do you think, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, I would say that if you want to be tax efficient and you're growing to a certain scale um, and typically... I think mortgage regulations treat a professional landlord as four or more properties. And I think that's a really good benchmark to actually start looking at four properties. Again, you know, we argue about the average value in, in the UK, but if we round to 250000 we're talking a million pounds of the property. So you want to be in a limited company, I think, if you're four or more, and that's your ambition. And so start with the end in mind, that whole process of looking at, actually, if you want to get to four or more properties, and that's your goal, then then get the limited company done, get get that sorted and make sure you get past the four properties and put them in the limited company. Uh, you know, that would be my view. But always take professional advice, right? Yeah, definitely. And you can't, um, you can't actually 
put a value on that professional advice until you've got it. So actually, sometimes people avoid the fees, they avoid paying for professional advice because they think it's expensive. Well, it's only expensive when in hindsight, when you make the mistake and you don't take the right advice. And actually, then you're in a position where you've ended up in the wrong place, you've got the wrong structure, you've then got to unpick it all. Um, You know, it's a bit like unraveling spaghetti, trying to straighten out um, cook spaghetti is just you know a bit of a mm. nightmare. You get a bit messy. So you know we took some bad advice right at the beginning of our journey when we went to property full time. This wasn't specifically just for single lets, but somebody told us set up in your own company um, as a sole trader, and for every house you get, do you remember this? Yeah. For every house you get, make sure that you take out a separate bank account for each property. And by the end of the first year, we had about 17 bank accounts. And when we came to incorporate, it was just a nightmare. Do you remember? I do. And and I should have known at that point, but you kind of, sometimes when people are in positions of authority who are perhaps on stage, who are speaking to you, mm. you tend to assume that, that they, they know, know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And it's not always the case. It's not always the case because they don't always have the experience themselves. It's just secondhand no. information. Yeah. <laughs> they're wannabes, you know, they want to be in the property arena. So they're surrounding themselves with um, the property networking, going to property events, mm. and I understand they that. Are, they don't realise that how many people are actually taking on this advice, sucking it up and going out and acting on that particular set of advice and we did certainly we were just one of probably loads of people that have gone out and done that anyway we back on to single lets so (laughs) I often from all of my communities on social media get told this I'm going to do single lets because the tenant profile the tenant demographic is a lot easier to manage than for example HMOs So there's a perception out there that the tenant demographic is easier to manage in a single buy-to-let property. And I want to just sort of push back on that and say that it's not the property that defines the tenant. It's you as a landlord or as an agent or as an investor that will decide what tenant to put into that property. So if you don't do your due diligence and if you don't go through all of the processes that you really should, and if you cut corners, then I think it's fair to say that you'll get a bad tenant in a single act just as much as you would if it was a HMO. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing with HMOs as well is that you have, you know, we we have a rule of five, um, which the listeners might not know, but actually we would only take HMOs with five or more tenants but that actually means you've got five income streams so if you've got a bad tenant or you've got a void you've got a spare income stream that you know we want three three property three tenants to actually make the income and the cash flow break even hopefully that isn't the fourth one so you want the fourth one to deliver some of the costs and the overhead of running a business and then the fifth one is the kind of the profit so you've got the capacity which you don't have in a single let and, and in, I think the coronavirus has been devastating for some landlords who have been walked all over by some tenants and they've lost their income. Mm. And some landlords have three or four properties and they're relying on that single income and it just disappears overnight, which is um, a real tragedy for the economy. Because I think we, we've come this far in the UK, I mean, the buy-to-let industry is it 20 years old or is it 30 years old? The, the the birthday was recently, wasn't it? Yeah. So we've got baby boomers, 70-year-old people who are exiting the market and potentially 
this year they were just looking for that income, have slowed down in their careers and their jobs, and they were looking for that income from their buy-to-let portfolio. And of course, a lot of them now exiting because they're looking at, well, actually, do I earn income? Do I go on to the, the market and prices are really great and make a big sort of capital gain now? Or do I continue down this road where I'm potentially we're getting challenged with voids, void periods, bad tenants, all this stuff? So mm. you can't blame that kind of amateur approach, that kind of accidental landlord for actually looking at the market now and thinking, you know, now's the time to sell up. I think as well also, everyone invests for different reasons. Now, we're talking from the the perspective of a professional investor. So we're professional investors, as of most of our listeners are, and we are just presuming that people are out there looking for cash flow. So let's look at it from the other side. Now, if someone's got a load of money sat in the bank, and you know, I don't want to go down the inflation and the eroding and blah blah because most people know that it's not really very savvy to keep your cash in the bank, certainly not at the moment. They might just want to put that in to an investment, they're going to get a much better return and over time potentially get some equity growth. Not everyone's in it for cash flow, right? Yeah, I get that, but I mean, immediately you said that, uh, I my brain started thinking, well, actually, what are the decisions between leaving the cash in the bank? and going and investing it in a single let. Go and buy a single let, get £1,000 a month cash flow. Um, you know, you've got £250,000 in the bank. Are you going to earn a tenner or are you going to earn £1,000 a month from your single let property, you know, which is 12000 a year? But it's going but, to be a hands-off for them though, isn't it? So, for example... What is it? Well, uh, well it would, <laughs> it, there's no such thing as passive investment, is there? But if you've got... Uh, there are more agents that are savvy for managing your portfolio for single lets than there are HMOs. So I'm just sort of, you know, playing the devil's advocate here, saying that if you're an IT consultant or you're an accountant or a doctor, I'm just picking, you know, uh, professions up out of the sky, and you've got money sat in the bank, you're not really that bothered about making more income because you're on a good salary anyway. Your motivation is more about making sure you've got a better return on your lump of money rather than going for that residual income as well. And you could have that, you know, sort of air quote, passive income, if you put it with an agent. Whereas, I mean, we've got another podcast coming up, haven't we, next week about HMOs. But whereas HMOs could be seen as being a lot more hassle, a lot more involvement, Less agents are able to take them on for you because of their ability and a lot more churn. Yeah, I, I think I don't understand what you said and I don't necessarily agree that actually somebody who has a job or an income is looking for a return um, versus looking for an income. I think the two are the same. So you, if you have a lump sum of money and your motivation is to get a better return than the bank, then that is actually getting income, isn't it? So... Mm you are still looking for the return on but the investment. I, what, I think what I mean is, you know, they're not actively out there looking for huge lumps of cash every month, as you might get in some of the higher risk, more work strategies, yeah. like service accommodation, like HMOs, yeah. like flipping. They want a better return, but they know that they can put it into a property, they can effectively set it, forget it, walk away from it, and just let the agents run it for them. Yeah, and I think you just said a really important word, risk. And, and it is about risk. So the reason people sit with money in the bank is because it's fairly risk-free. You're not going to lose that capital amount. Um, there is a challenge, I think, for some people who are scared of the rental market, particularly first-time um, landlords, etc. 
But I think if you if you're looking at kind of the risk factor between having a um, a single buy to let or a HMO or some higher cash flowing strategy, then the risk is that you know with a single let, yeah, you can find an agent um, and you've got to find a good agent, but also you've got to make sure that your property is well looked after. It's not your property, mm. and if and and this brings me full circle really to the whole idea that. You know, we as business owners, we're never going to we we care more than any agent, than any um, any kind of other employee yeah, sure. or staff would actually care about. You know, yeah. the cash flow coming in. So, if you can be at the head of your business, your property business, and have the confidence and the skills, the education and the knowledge to actually run your property business, and not everybody wants to though. No, I know not everybody wants to, but I think if you've got a couple of hours spare a month that you could find a really good hobby, interest, passion for property. A lot of people really love property. They, And I think because we all, buy, people buy their own homes, they, they're in, they get the kind of the basic knowledge of how to buy and transact a home, go through the conveyancing process, get a mortgage, all that sort of stuff, that we feel that we have the sort of the basic foundations and skills to get into the property market. The unknown is kind of how to manage talent, tenants, but I also think, you know, if you have a lump sum of money in the bank, then you're, you must be some kind of savvy person who's got a career or who's who's managed to put that money aside. What if it's been left to you? Well, I knew you were going to come up with that <laughs> argument. Um, we park that for a minute. But if, you, if you've earned that money, that money's come to you with a certain amount of passion, certain amount of hard work. It's hard earned for you and you want to protect it. So if you develop those skills, it doesn't matter if you then end up managing the agent and learn how to manage tenants effectively. You, you kind of complete the whole circle. You've got the the whole suite of tools in your bag. That means you can then um, take it back if you wanted to, if the agent's not doing a great job. You've lowered the risk of actually getting your mm. return correct. Um, and I think as, as well, if you... You know, we, I mentioned earlier about taking on the right tenant, doing the right due diligence, and I'll come. I'll, I'll give some tips to the listeners in a second on how to do that. But if you do that, it's fair to say that we've got. I mean, we sound at the moment like we're anti buy to let. We're not. We've got twenty seven single lets of our own in our own portfolio. You know, but this is just putting it out there just to show the different strategies that you can use and the pros and cons. Now, I do believe there are better strategies, but it is good to have a diverse portfolio as well. But it's fair to say that we had a very large HMO portfolio before we decided to go heavy on single lets as well at the same time. But I just wanted to say about the tenant element. Now, if you put the right tenant in, you can have tenants stay with you for, I think the longest serving tenant we've got is 17 years. And mm. now we did buy that property with the tenant in situ, which isn't an issue. And they've been there for 17 years. So, you know, very often, if you pick the right person, you can just leave them to it and just get on and have a relatively passive income. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we are single buy-to-let landlords. We've, we've bought portfolios, so we buy blocks of flats with you know, I suppose the way we say it is that actually when we buy a block of flats, we end up buying multiple streams of income as well. It's almost like the HMO, but on a, a single at HMO, as it were. Um, but it, it, those kind of decisions are made out, I think, I'm completely biased towards cash flow. Uh, mm. I've worked in big businesses where cash flow has been um, very tight, small, low margin businesses. And 
it always changes the culture. It almost makes it more stressful when you're close to break even, when you're not making any money, when there's some kind of big cost coming or big capital expenditure needed. And I just think the the culture of that business is less fun. So I think I'm sort of, I am biased to that high cash flow culture because I just think it gives you so much more decisions, more opportunity to spend money, more opportunity to invest back in, more opportunity to grow your portfolio. Mm. Easier to use strategies. Yeah. Finance options are going to be yeah. better because you could, and we'll talk about this on another show, but you might be able to get commercial valuation. Not that that's always the utopia. You could always go for purchase lease options as well on a higher cash flowing strategy because it's easier because the money is there to be able to negotiate with the owner. And of course, they, you know, I think when it comes to all things property, I think buy to lets are at the very lower end of the cash flow spectrum. Yeah, that they, they would be. And they have a place and I think they're great. If you're in an active part of your life, you're you're fit and well and you have the ability to to get involved, to dabble, then I think um you know you might want to look at some high cash flow strategies. If you're switching into retirement and you're traveling the world, then that might be the time to look at um switching to single lets, putting them into um into a decent agent, establish that relationship before you um, book the worldwide cruise you want to make sure that you've had a few um, emergencies that your agent has coped with and managed um, and I think they have their place they definitely do have their place but if we are talking about um, looking at single lets as a business then I, I really think you need to be buying in a portfolio in bulk to kind of create that value because they can mm. be difficult that's not for the that's not for the new starter though is it i mean uh, you know when you're talking about buying portfolios you're looking at a huge amount of money yeah you know the average property price excluding prime central london now has just hit about two hundred eighty-eight thousand or thereabouts it does go up and down depending on which report you read and the latest report hasn't come out yet we're waiting for that you know the end of january generally speaking when the halifax price index comes out but if you're going to go out there and spend £288,000 on, on one property, then that's going to be a lot more manageable than taking up five or six. And not many people are going to be in that position, are they? No, and but there are cheaper parts of the country to invest in. If you are looking for a hands-off um, portfolio, you know you could invest uh, in low-capital areas up north um, and, and build that portfolio from that you know start small but I think if you have a high cash flowing strategy to begin with it kind of gives you that headroom to be able to build a portfolio and then you can kind of switch into buying or have the vision that at some point you will switch back to a single let mm. I can see the attraction Lorraine you know when it comes to people that don't know much about the high cash flowing strategies now when I was in the police I remember when we were thinking about me exiting and going back into property investing, you mentioned going into this weird and wonderful strategy called HMOs. Mm -hmm. Now, my experience in the police with HMOs, didn't really know what they were. I saw them as house shares. I didn't know what they were called. I was literally bashing the door in and arresting the people inside for prostitution and drug dealing. Then you said to me, I've been to a networking meeting. And I've been talking to some people that have managed to leave their jobs because they're now investing in HMOs. And that's when you take on the property and you split it up and, and, and you, you, know, you get multiple income streams. And I was beside myself. I was like, no, I just want to buy single let houses. Mm. 
single at houses to put people in, put families in, leave them alone, and then just get on with life. Yeah. And then it wasn't really until I started to educate myself with all of these other strategies and one being HMOs, did I realise that it doesn't have to be like that. Mm. The tenants don't have to be that demographic. No. So when we started our HMO business, we went into the work and we, and we kind of, we, we coined it as, as white collar workers back then, didn't You're we? Allowed to say that. I don't think you can. I don't think you can say white collar, blue collar anymore. I said it twice now. But, <laughs> you know, I think we did put people into boxes, but now it's just anyone with a job. But back then we were, you know, we were advertising literally for police officers, accountants, IT consultants. We had doctors, we had nurses, we had everybody that were not the demographic of tenant that I was used to dealing with. And I very, I quickly realised that actually this isn't bad. This is actually quite easy if you take on the right tenant. Now, I did say, Lorraine, to the listeners that I would give some tips on taking on the right tenant. So I know this isn't HMO podcast. That's next week. But we're talking about buy-to-lets. And people do worry about taking on the wrong tenant. So here's a few of my tips. Now, this is just off the top of my head. It's really important when you take on a tenant that you do your due diligence and as much as you can lawfully do. Now, you have to ask the tenants their permission in order to complete referencing. And that's all for, you know, GDPR and everything else. So this is what we do in our business. So when a tenant applies for a room or a house or a flat, then we give them something called a getting to know you form. Now, that's distributed by my tenant software, which is called Go Tenant. So check that out. Now, on that getting to know you form, we ask a certain amount of questions before we even agree to the viewing. So we're asking things like, you know, why do you want to move? How much rent can you afford? Are you in full-time employment? Have you ever been evicted from a property? And you can just really ask as many questions as you want to without being too intrusive. Now, this is self-declaration, so the tenant can lie, but this is just the first part. Now, when that form comes back, we can then look at the answers and make a decision on whether or not we feel that they're worthy of having a viewing, whether or not we think they're going to be good tenants to fit into our portfolio. Now, if they are, the next step will be to go onto Google and Google search them. Now, this is really important. The amount of tenants that we've taken on in the past and we haven't Google searched them and we found out afterwards that they've actually got criminal records for all sorts of horrible things, we would never have taken them. So always make sure you Google search them before you go to the viewing. My next tip when you go to the viewing is just see how they present themselves. Are you comfortable with them? Are they nice people? Do they come across well? Or is there anything at all that raises a red flag? Now, generally speaking, if there's a red flag, then it's there for a reason. And if you go against it, it will probably end up biting you in the bum. The next element would be then, if you're happy at the viewing, is to go for referencing. Now, there are loads of people that say, you know, it's always great to go for their previous landlord, or the, sorry, their current landlord, and their previous landlord. Because if they're a bad tenant, their current landlord will do everything they can to try and get rid of them. So they're going to give them a false reference, maybe. Sometimes it happens, and we've seen it before. But their previous landlord will give you warts and all. But the practicalities of actually finding their previous landlord and even then getting a response from them is actually quite hard. So do as much as you can when it comes to that. The next thing is to do an affordability test. Now, we've got an affordability threshold in our portfolio that their rent can't be any more than 38% of their gross income. Now, that's a really good measure. 
And you can choose which measure you want to. I think the industry standard's about 35 to, well, depends. London is, you know, sort of encroaching up to 40%. And if they pass that, then the next element is to credit score them. Now, the credit score will give you loads of information. It will tell you if they've ever been made insolvent or got any county court judgments. And it will also give you their last three years address history from the electoral roll. Now, you can use a company called creditref.co.uk, creditref, as in credit reference. Now, it's pay-as-you-go. I think it's £9 plus VAT. And the results will come back immediately. So once you've done all of that, and you've got your referencing, the last thing to do is to check their employment, make sure they do have a job, make sure it's not a zero-hours contract. Now, there's a big issue with zero-hour contracts. I know that a lot of people have still got them. We've taken tenants on with zero-hour contracts, but they say they're working 40 hours a week, and then, hey, presto, a week later, they're saying they've got no hours, so they can't pay the rent. So make sure that they do show you proof of income with pay slips. Make sure they do have a full-time job, and that's pretty much all you can do. Once you've done all of that, then you go through the whole of the check-in process. But let's face, you know, we can't get it right 100% of the time. But if you do follow those tips and go through that procedure, then I think it's fair to say you'll get it right most of the time. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about your in your police career is bashing indoors. And because of that process, how many policemen have come and bashed in the doors of our properties? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't... Th- I don't... Have we ever had any properties forced entry i'm not sure we have no I, I think we had one tenant who potentially was um was ill or there were some concerns for their safety um but it wasn't a kind of a i don't think we've ever had any criminal type any damage yeah forced. i don't think we've ever had any forced damage by police officers fortunately sometimes um depends who it is and when it is but we do get a phone call from the local police sometimes to say look we're outside we need to get in we have key safes outside all of our properties We'll talk about that maybe on a future podcast on the little tips and tricks that we use. Yeah. But we've always put key safes in, police approved key safes, and that means that anyone can get access at any time. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I'd rather have a master key. The thing is with a master key, you've still got to hold it, you've still got to meet people at the property. So if you do get a call from the police at four o'clock in the morning, all you've got to do is give them the key safe code and they can let themselves in. And it's a really great tip. Yeah. Definitely. Hey, we're, we're 30 minutes into the first podcast of the rebrand, which is the New Era Property Podcast. So, folks, I hope you've enjoyed that. Lorraine, have you enjoyed it? Yeah, it's gone really quick, hasn't it? Yeah, it's flown by. Next week, what are we talking about? Next week, we're talking about our HMOs a job. And I was going to say more, but I'll just leave it there. Okay, you stop there, right? <laughs> our HMOs a job. So, tune in next Wednesday for that podcast. Now, what we would love you to do is it's very difficult to get people to leave reviews because you have to physically do something. So once we've started now, we've got a rebrand. I mean, I don't know how many episodes I've got all together on the podcast. There's over 100 episodes here. We've been going for about five years. So we're one of the, the, the first people in this space to get out there and do property podcasts. So what I'd love you to do, if you enjoy the show, if you have enjoyed this particular episode, could you head over to Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to the podcast, and leave a review? That would be absolutely awesome. Now, if you could leave a review and just put a few words in, just to give a few thoughts on what you think of the show and anything that you'd like us to do in the future. So with that in mind, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Lorraine. Let's uh, wrap it up, and we'll see you next Wednesday. See you next Wednesday. 